Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. Um, On this show, we interview individuals who have survived hell and live to tell about it. We do a lot of recovering addicts, but we also do people who have been wrongfully uh, convicted. We've done a Holocaust survivor. We've done a lot of interesting people. Uh, Basically, anyone that has an inspiring story of hope we like to interview on here. Um, Today, I got my friend Robin. I've known Robin since I've been clean. Uh, You're an extremely charismatic person, you know, since I've met you, you know, and um, every time I see you, I always light up. Uh, We share a commitment, so we would see each other pretty often. Yeah. And, um, you know, like when I think of like a woman speaker, you know, I always think about you. So I'd love to have you on the show. I appreciate you being here. Absolutely. If you just want to start with your story, where you're from, how it all started. I can, uh. I'm originally, my name is Robin, as Brian told you. I love you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Love you too. So I'm originally from New York. Um, I want to start out by saying that it's really weird when it comes to my addiction because I literally lived in like three continents before mm-hmm. I was 16. And I say that because that's just how dramatic my addiction was. I had seen the world and once I picked up my drug, I couldn't leave a 10 block radius. That's how much I was caught in the grip. I'm originally from New York. My mom was a single mom. And uh, I'm from Queens and, you know, she was a nurse and, you know, doing the steps and working the program of Narcotics Anonymous, I was able to see that I was an addict long before I picked up the drugs. And for me, my first addiction was stealing. I did a lot of stealing at a very young age. I could remember her having these parties or these gatherings, these get togethers with her coworkers, and they'd usually be on weekdays and they would put their coats in their purses in the room that I was sleeping. And then they would go downstairs and play their music and drink and do whatever. That's when my addiction spiked. I would stay up until I heard them laughing and loud. And then I would go through all of their coats and purses and just steal a little bit of money out of everybody's. I never discriminated even back then. Mm -hmm. Even back then, my addiction was in stages because when I stole the money, I would stay up and wait for their party to be over and for them to come back upstairs and collect their belongings and try to go through their pockets and wallets to get their cab or bus fare or train fare together. And in the middle of them being intoxicated, they'd realize that some of their money was missing. Mm -hmm. And then they'd start to blame each other. And I'd be right there under the blanket, supposed to be sleeping. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was really funny, right? So that was a joy. And then the next phase was I couldn't wait to go to school the next day because Didn't have a lot of friends, but I had a whole lot of friends when I had that little wad of cash to buy candy or whatever we we had going on, baseball cards, grease cards. And it was exciting. So even back then, it went in stages. And I'd like to say I got away with that for about a good two and a half, almost three years, completely uninterrupted. Just like our disease of addiction progressed, so did my thievery. And uh, there was another night that these things were going on and I came across a wallet that had $100 bills in them. And I had never seen a $100 bill before. Mm -hmm. So I was very excited about that. So much so that I could not go to sleep. I snuck out. They were partying, they were doing a thing and I snuck out and went down to the bodega. And the guy that owned that corner store, me and his daughter used to go to Catholic school together. So he knew me, he knew my mom. And there I am probably like midnight, one o'clock in the morning trying to buy something with this $100 bill. I picked up a box of my favorite cereal, which was honeycomb back Mm -hmm. then. I picked up a box of the honeycomb cereal and then a family pack of Snickers because that was my favorite candy. I figure, you know, it didn't matter how big it was, this $100 bill should be able to cover it. And then I put that $100 bill on the counter. He looked at me and he said, listen, I'll be right back. And he went into the back room and I could hear him calling my mother. Mm -hmm. You know, like he didn't know sound traveled. He said, listen, I don't know what's going on, but your daughter's down here with a hundred dollar bill trying to get some candy. So of course my mother was a little uh, tipsy, if you will. And I knew that she was coming down armed with something. I come from a family of 
a lot of whoopings. Today they call them child abuse. Mm -hmm. Back then my mother, you know, she used to discipline us, beat us like before she even went to work as a preamp to of what we we're going to do. We, never, we weren't good kids. Um, so I knew she was coming down and she was intoxicated. And sure enough, there she came, came down the block, five houses down. We were, I wasn't far. Mm -hmm. And I've walked those five houses a lot. But for some reason, her coming down with that extension card, that was her weapon of choice in that moment. And she beat me. And I was, you know, running back towards the house. Like I said, I had gotten beaten quite a few times, but something about this one made a difference. Mm -hmm. And it was that I was screaming, she was screaming, and all my friends who I was supposed to be buying candy for the following day now turned into, I'm going to have to explain this embarrassing moment tomorrow. So the whole thing changed for me with that particular butt whooping. And as um, soon as we got home, I mean, I didn't take a shower. I didn't get to really sit down. Her first statement was to me was, um, you're going to have to decide where you're going to go live. And I'm like, you're being a little graphic right now, a little drastic, aren't mm -hmm. you? And uh, she says, no, you can either go live with your brother. My brother was stationed in the service. That's how I ended up in Germany. She said, you can either go live with your brother or go live with your father. And my father was in South America. My family's from Guyana. So I never really knew my father. So I chose to go and stay with my brother. While I was getting ready to go overseas, there was this guy that I had a crush on. He was like my Michael Jackson that moment. His name was Dwayne. He was 16 and I'm 13. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? I'm absolutely in love with this guy. He has no idea that we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. But my 13-year-old mind is brewing this perfect thing. And I said, if I ask him to give me his address, because around that week I was getting all of my addresses from my friends because I was sad. And when I was leaving, you want to write them. I wanted to write them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I figured I'd throw him into the bunch. Poor Dwayne. He did. He gave me his address. And I was so excited. And I'm telling you, by the time I landed in Frankfurt, I had about 20 letters written. They were sealed. They had lip gloss stamps on them. <laughs> All they needed was an actual stamp to go out in the mail. All of them protesting my love. I lived in Germany for three years with my brother. You know, we were on a military base. He was stationed in Baumholder. And there was a skating rink in Germany. And, you know, my brother had six kids. So even though... He was willing to take me. I know he needed some help with all these kids, right? Mm -hmm. He had six kids, and in the midst of them, he had a set of twins and his wife. So while I'm grateful for the experience, I kind of know that I was there to help also. So when I saw that skating rink, he, you know, he took me to skate. They had a help wanted sign on there. I asked him, could I get a part-time job uh -huh. there? So it worked out great. And uh, he told me, he says, as long as you can respect the curfew, which I think was like 930, then it's no problem. He's a disciplinary. He's a soldier. But uh, I was having so much fun, right? And this is over a three-year period that these moments went on. He told me I had to respect the schedule, which was 9.30. I came home the first time, probably like 10, 10, 15. He gave me this lecture. He walked me down to the laundry room that was in mm -hmm. the basement. And I'm like, why is he having this long conversation? And why are we walking in the basement? What he was doing in the middle of his lecture, well, he was going down there to cut the back of one of the washing machine cords. Because remember, I come from a family wow. of disciplinaries. So he cut the cord and then we walked back up and he was still lecturing. But he ended up hanging that cord, this really thick cord, up under the clock. And what he was telling me was that the next time I'm late, it's going to be me, him, and the cord. Wow. And it being hung up under the clock was like my my reminder. reminder yeah. mm -hmm. So, And I did. I remembered it for about six months. And then I was late again. When I came home that day, he did. He beat me with the cord. It hurt, you know, as typical. It hurt. But uh, I want to say I remembered about the cord. I remember about the curfew for about another six, seven months. And then I forgot again. Mm -hmm. You know, in the skating rink and all that, you get caught up in even one conversation. I was just excited to be in Germany, to be a part of a whole different system. Did you learn German? Ich kann sprechen viel Deutsch. Yes. Get out of here. Ich kann sprechen viel Deutsch. Ich lebe in Deutschland drei Jahren. Wow. I just said, I speak fluent German. I lived in Germany for three years. I didn't know that. And ich liebe dich, Brian. I said, I love you, Brian. Love you too. So, yeah. German, you know, believe it or not, German is the easiest language to English. Most people think that English is the hardest language. Yeah, so now I'm forgetting about that chord, right? After the whipping, and when I came back, I knew I was in trouble, right? Even though there was a gap between those moments, I knew that my brother doesn't forget stuff. He's a disciplinary. Everything about him is systematic. So I kind of knew when I went home, it was about to go down. Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, you think you're grown now, don't you? And my brother punched me once. Wow. Now, this was over the three-year period that I was there. And I would send Dwayne all these letters, and I'd like, remember, because I'm in love. Was he writing you back? No. 
Here's the thing. Here's the thing. It was all in my head. Dwayne sent me one letter, and to this date, I can't even tell you what, what it, it said. But my head said he understands what's happening, and we're gonna be together forever. So over the when my brother knocked me out, punch in the face, punched me in the face, knocked me out. I wow. saw stars, and everything went black. And then Holy I woke up shit. like completely, completely knocked out. I was thirteen. Wow. Mm-hmm. I woke up. And I call my mom, right? Because when I got that one letter from Dwayne, it said to me, he's on point. So now I'm pushing 16 and I'm in heat now. So I used that punch. <laughs> <laughs> I used that punch that my brother gave me to manipulate my way to get back to the States. Uh -huh. So I called my mom and I said, listen, my brother's been beating me the whole time I'm here. He's broken my leg, my arm. If you don't send for me, I'm going to die right here mm -hmm. in Germany. And uh, none of that was true. It was about me trying to get back to the States. So she said, okay, um, I'll send a ticket for you to come home. So again, I'm now I'm riding the wind. I'm on my way home. We're gonna have sex. I've saved myself for you. It's <laughs> you and me forever. Never got a response from that one either. My head said it worked. When I got the plane ticket, it said to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Mm -hmm. And I'm from New York and the love of my life is in New York. So this presented a problem for me, right? I got here, you know, I grew up in Palmyra. My mother was the only black family that lived in Palmyra, right? This is in 1984. And, you know, she did what she was supposed to do, right? Sign me up for school and get me ready to start my life here in the States. And all I could think about is how do I get to New York? And, you know, I created all these lies and these reasons why it didn't work. I think I ran home one time and told, oh, my God, I saw the KKK chasing me and <laughs> we got to leave. I got to leave. Just very dramatic Um Sneaky stuff has always been resonating in my head. And my mother was like, you know, she had been living there. So it's like, just shut up and stop it and let's get ready to go to school. And I created a couple of other lies. I can't remember them. But what I understood was that she was not sending me to Queens, right? I mean, I did have a sister in New York. I tried to get her to let me go live there. She's like, no, this is where we live. You know, she didn't tell me that she moved from New York to Florida while I was in Germany. She didn't consult me. I went to thinking, which is a dangerous thing for an addict, in the making is that how am I going to get to New York because I'm in love with Dwayne. I sent him a letter that he never responded to, by the way, that I'm coming to New York so he knows. And I started to remember that while I was in Germany, my brother used to go to the post office and ship my mom a, a lot of different guns, right? He wanted to have a collection when he retired. Yeah. So I knew that my mom had some guns in the home. So now a plan is getting started. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, if I can get a gun... If I can commit some sort of a robbery to get the cash, I can get to New York, have sex with Dwayne, and live happily ever after. Like, uh -huh. that was my instant plan, right? And uh, mission accomplished. I found a gun. I booked the flight. I, you know, this was... Do you even know how to use a gun? No. No, not at all. But it was going to happen, right? Yeah. And, you know, I called over the phone to book a flight because this was before you needed your DNA and everything mm -hmm. to get a flight. You could call and book a flight. And I did. I booked a flight to Kennedy Airport. And they said, Fort Lauderdale Airport. Now, mind you, I wasn't in New York a week. I did not uh, know how to get to the airport. So I had to catch a cab. I called a cab. to. Take you weren't a in Florida for a week. I wasn't in Florida a week. Yeah. I said, listen, um, I need you to take the local roads. So here I am getting up in the morning, got this big coat. Before I went to bed, I'm putting the, the gun in the coat so they can't see the bulk of it all. And, you know, I slept on this. It all made perfect sense to me. I called the cab. I said, please take the local roads because I want to stop and get something to eat before we go to the airport. The stop to get something to eat is where I was going to commit the robbery. I mm -hmm. just had to find a spot that was open. And it was early in the morning. I think my flight was at like 8, and I was on the road at like 6.30, 7 o'clock. And they would let you book a flight with no money? Over the phone. Over the phone. Yeah, and then 84. pay there? Mm -hmm. Wow. 84. We didn't have that ruckus. And it wasn't technology, none of that stuff. Yeah. It was fine to do that. I passed this McDonald's. The McDonald's is still there. It's on Sunrise and 441 with the playground. Mm -hmm. And that was the only thing that I passed on 441 because I'm living in Pompano, right? So I said, pull up in this McDonald's. I'd like to get something to eat. And I had him park on the other side. There's a little strip there. And I went into the McDonald's and I said, okay, this is a stick up. Everybody down like 6.45 in the morning, wow. and there were three people in that store. There were two younger people and an older lady. The two younger people just dropped. I never saw them again. Mm -hmm. The gun was pointed, and it was this older lady, right? You know, when we're older, we're a little fearless, right? Uh -huh. She started lecturing me with this gun at her face. She's like, listen, 
You're such a young, beautiful girl. Why are you doing this with your life? You're, wow. you know, you know, this whole thing. And now I started shaking because she didn't drop. She didn't get the money. She's talking. I said, listen, lady, just put the money in one of these bags, McDonald's bag, mm -hmm. right? Put the money in this bag. I got to go. She was still talking and she was putting the money in the bag. And then I told her to sit down and don't move. Mm -hmm. And I proceeded to run out the door because I, now the cab is still waiting, right? Yeah. So I need to get back to the cab. The bag that looked like it had food really had the money. Mm -hmm. It all started working out good. But the old lady, she didn't stay seated. She never mm -hmm. sat. She matter of fact, she chased me right out of the store. And she said, oh, stop her. She just robbed the, the McDonald's. The cab heard that and took off. Wow. So now here I am running. Even today I'm laughing because I was running in the opposite direction of the airport. I was running <laughs> back towards Pompano. I didn't know which way to run. And as I was running, there was a guy jogging and he heard the young lady because the cab had taken off. And uh, he heard her and he tackled me and the gun dropped and it went off. Nobody got hurt. Wow, it went right? off? It went off. All there was I, one it, in the chamber? Dropped. Yeah, yeah. It dropped and went off. That's crazy. He put me in a headlock. And again, this was before cell phones, even beepers. Mm -hmm. And he put me in this headlock and he drug me to like the nearest payphone, which wasn't very far away. It was on that strip. And I'm bargaining with him like, dude, I'm just trying to get to the airport. I have some <laughs> money. You can have some. And he wouldn't say a thing. He had me in a headlock. And I'd like to think I'm pretty strong, but I couldn't get out of the headlock for nothing. He dialed 911. The cops came. He called 911 while he's grabbing you yeah, in the headlock. Yeah, yeah, like this. <laughs> wow. And, uh, the cops came and he made what they called a citizen's arrest. Mm -hmm. So now here I am headed to juvenile detention center. Again, I know nothing. When they ask me simple questions like, what's my phone number? What's my mom's phone number? You know, we only had landlines. What's my mom's phone number? Where does she work? I didn't know any of those things, right? If you'd ask me what's Dwayne's phone number, and don't forget, <laughs> he's still there, big part, right? What's Dwayne's phone number? What's Dwayne's address? I could give it to them very easily. But uh, I couldn't answer those questions, so I sat in juvenile detention center until I went to my first court hearing. My mother didn't even know because she didn't make no contact. She mm -hmm. didn't know. But um, when I went to court, the same guy that made the citizen's arrest, the he was there. Mm -hmm. He showed up. What I found out is that he was trying out for the police academy. That's insane. And so my situation only helped his situation. You know, they sentenced me to like nine months to um, Ocala State School for Girls. That's mm -hmm. where I had some wonderful experiences with women. <laughs> you know, I probably could have gotten out of there sooner, right? For the, they tried me as a juvenile, thank God, but I kept getting caught with the women and, you know, learning all that's mm -hmm. a whole other class. What, what, did you know you were bisexual? No. It happened over there? It happened they, in there. They turned yeah, you on yeah, over there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was, that was, it was a beautiful experience, but we don't have, time. We don't have enough time for that, Brian, right? So, um... And even while I was in the juvenile detention center and went to Ocala State School for Girls, my mother found out like two days before they were shipping me over to Ocala State School for Girls. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I could wrap my head around, because this is before the drugs, right? I had a felony, but as a juvenile, before the drugs. And the only conclusion I could come to was that relationships with boys or trying to have sex could probably get you locked up. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing that was stewing in my mind. So I treaded lightly, which I didn't have to because I was locked up in that moment. Yeah. But when I came out, it became a thing like, be careful. I did get this other boyfriend and his name was Ronnie. You know, I went to the movie theaters. He was a movie attendant. And, uh, you know, he talked to me. I guess that's probably all because mm -hmm. I wasn't really looking. But if someone said something, I bet that's mm -hmm. where it was with that one. And, uh, and where are you living at, at this point? Still in Palm Air. You know, I okay. got released and I went home to my mother. You know, she signed me up for school. Yeah, he was there. He said something. I don't know what he said, something nice. And instantly, like, we started dating. Mm -hmm. And we dated for about three months. And, you know, my mother worked graveyards back then. And I remember he came to sleep over. We never had sex, but he came and he slept over. I can't remember what it was we were arguing about, but he made a statement. He said, you make me so mad, I could just kill you. But when he said that, you know, I'm a, I'm a Scorpio, I'm feisty, and we're in this argument. So am I. <laughs> and we, we were in this argument, and I'm like, okay. He said that. So I went into the kitchen, and I got a knife. And I said, okay, you feel like you want to kill me here? And I sat the knife on the nightstand and went to bed. And then he woke up, you know, before my mother was coming home from work. He left. I left. And I say that to say that this is a guy that that's how comfortable I felt in that moment that I didn't foresee what was about to happen. So probably 
probably about a month after that. We dated for like three months. I called his house again when he had landlines. His sister answered the phone and, you know, I had never met her, but she sounded cute on the phone. Mm -hmm. And I started to remember my experiences in Ocala State School for Girls, right? So when she said, Ronnie isn't here, and she must have said, you know, do you want me to tell him something? I started talking to her and bragging to her about- You're like, do- what's your name? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Doing like hard time in Ocala State School for girls. Just bragging and, you know, has she ever thought about dating girls? And I don't even think she was paying attention to that. But when I was talking about being locked up, she chimed in and said, you know, Ronnie was locked up too. And I said, really? He never told me that he was locked up. She said, yeah, they said he raped an eight-year-old girl. Wow. But he said he didn't do it. Now, it's so funny because when she said that, I was looking at my eight-year-old sister. And again, this is back in 1984 where you mm-hmm. didn't hear about pedophilia as much as you hear about it today. Mm-hmm. So just the thought of that kind of weirded me weird out, right? Yeah. So I decided I wanted to break up with Ronnie because none of that, you know, it was mm-hmm. a shock effect. And uh, right around the time that I was breaking up with Ronnie, my sister that I was telling you that still lived in New York, she had got diagnosed with sickle cell anemia. It's, it's a black disease, mm-hmm. I guess. You know, it's like lupus. And her doctors were telling her that a tropical place, she had become real ill, and a tropical place like South Florida would be good for her health. Mm-hmm. So she was relocating in that same two-week realm that I was breaking up with Ronnie. So my mother didn't know about this boyfriend, right? We keep these things from our parents. So when my older sister came, I was so glad to tell her, listen, I was dating this boy and now we broke up because his sister said this and and he was always trying to call and get back together. So my sister intercepted one of those calls, right? I said, this is him, this is him. So she answered, she says, listen, my sister says she doesn't want to date you anymore, so don't call her anymore. Typical big sister stuff. Mm -hmm. Two nights later, he came and he murdered my sister. Wow. So that was... uh, Needless to say, very devastating. Because remember, I was in Germany for three years. Then I went to Ocala State School for Girls. And he had never met your never sister. Never met my sister. And uh, well, yeah, I'm going to talk in detail about that. So I hadn't seen her for almost five years, and she was in my life for less than a week, and she was gone. So serious depression went on. My mother's devastated. My siblings are devastated. There was some blame, you know, some misguided grief and anger. You know, my mother sent me to a psychiatrist. She sent me to a psychologist. They gave me medication. They gave me Ritalin that I still feel in waves today every now and again. That (laughs) shit surfaces. The therapist and the psychiatrist were telling me things like, you know, it's not your fault. Don't blame yourself. And I couldn't wrap my head around any of that. Like, even if I was having a good therapy session, the moment they said that, it's like the whole thing went left. It Mm -hmm. was counterproductive because my head would tell me, had it not been for you, this is impossible. Of course it's your fault. That was your boyfriend who did that. Mm-hmm. So while they were trying to do the best that they could, certain words sparked where you don't know what you're talking about. And I held on to that, that guilt. It was crazy. And, you know, my mother thought I was going to school. I wouldn't go to school. I'd spend a lot of time at the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And Just, what happened to him? He uh, got arrested? Yes. He got arrested for second-degree murder. You know, they charged him with second degree murder and they gave him 17 years. And Ronnie had gave a tape confession. First of all, he told me that he was 19 and he was 21. He was 21 and you were 16? Mm -hmm. Jesus. He had gave a tape confession saying that he had walked from his house to my house, which is like four miles. Mm Mm-hmm that he had walked our house. So we thought that that was premeditated. That's a long walk. So why they would even give him second degree baffled my whole family. He had mm-hmm. plenty of time to say, you know, this is not a good idea, turn around, you know. But they gave him second degree murder, 17 years, and they released him. They released him in seven and a half years. He did less than his time. Wow. And the reason that they released him, they said the prisons was overcrowded. So instead of they let go, you know. And he has a prior yeah, conviction of yeah. pedophilia. And I'm telling you, he was out maybe six months and he had murdered another girl. Wow. That girl, her name was Lisa Dykes that he murdered. And she too was not his girlfriend, right? This is where they saw the pattern with him. Mm -hmm. She was the roommate of his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And when the girlfriend had found out, you know, I've spoken to them, that's how I know this. When the girlfriend had found out that he allegedly raped that eight-year-old girl, which turned out to be true, right? He allegedly raped that eight-year-old girl and murdered my sister. She didn't want to date somebody like that. So then he did it again. Right. 
So he didn't murder the girlfriend. That was the only pattern that they saw. Who would murder someone close to them. Someone who intercepted in their relationship. When they said, she mm -hmm. said she didn't want to talk to you or don't call her or she's not home. That whole lying thing. He had a problem with people injecting themselves in the relationships. Mm. That's the pattern the doctor saw with him. So when he murdered my sister and I would, you know, my mother would think I'm going to school. I wasn't going to school. I was spending all my time at the cemetery because I was devastated. And uh, I realized in one of my trips to pretending to go to school and ending up at the cemetery that there was a pool hall across the street. And I said, I learned how to shoot pool when I was in Ocala State School for Girls. So this might be something that I could do to kill some time before that three o'clock that I'm supposed to be home for school. Because mm -hmm. I wasn't doing any school at all. And I would do that regularly. I would go and shoot pool, spend time at the cemetery. It's literally across the street. So I would do the both of those. And in one of these episodes that I was going to the pool hall, a young lady came through the door. Today, I know she was intoxicated. Back then, my 16-year-old mind said, damn, she's happy. Mm -hmm. I want to be happy like her, right? And something possessed me to ask her, did she want to shoot again a pool? And I did. And she was just laughing and just giddy. And she said, sure, rack them up. And she said that as she went into the bathroom. So I racked up the pool balls and uh, she didn't come out. So I broke and I shot until I missed, right? Mm -hmm. Just killing some time. I went, I knocked on the door because now it's her turn. I knocked on the door. She came out. She took her shot. She shot until she missed. She went back into the bathroom. I says, okay. So I took my shot. You know, she was just busy and happy and entertaining for me because, you know, I haven't seen like this side of somebody's mind being altered. I was shooting. I'm thinking as I'm shooting, what's got this girl keep going back and forth into the bathroom like nobody shits like that. What's, <laughs> what's happening? Right. Curiosity's killing me now. You know, we were in this rhythm, so she knew that I was coming. And so she left the door cracked open. And that was the introduction to my drug of choice. You know, I had never smoked a cigarette, drank a wow. beer, smoked a joint. You know, I didn't graduate into any levels of addiction. When that door was open and it was cracked and I could see her with that bottle doing this drug, you know, instantly I was like, I want to escape. I want to feel like she's feeling. And even today, you know, my sponsor said that, you know, she used drugs once in her life and the rest of the journey, the drugs used her. And that is my story, right? That's the only moment that I'm sharing with you right that now you that I used the drug, mm -hmm. right? I was hooked instantly. It was crack? It was crack. And she was smoking out of like the bottle? The, yeah, the crack bottle, the little wine bottle. Back then it was yeah. a little, the square wine bottle and she melted it and made a stem and she got an antenna, some mm -hmm. craziness. And uh, I was like in awe of the bottle. Like it had so much control from the very beginning. It's almost like I didn't even see her. Mm -hmm. Like it just floated to me on its own. So I had never inhaled anything, but I'm telling you, when I hit that drug and I inhaled it, it's like I had been smoking for years. It's like, okay, <laughs> okay. So now there was no communication in the bathroom. Some, rule number one with crack, like just don't talk. Locked you have off. to do more listening, no talking. So we're in this bathroom <laughs> and she keeps, she's passing me this drug. And I started to watch her demeanor and the things that she was doing. And I wanted to you know, be a graduate of this moment, right? This bathroom moment that we're having. So when she started peeping all over the place, I started peeping too, because I don't know what I was peeping. I was really just doing her motions. When she started picking on her skin, I started picking on her skin. And then I decided that I should probably pick on my skin because, you know, I don't really know her, right? Mm -hmm. So she was peeping, I was peeping, she was picking, I was picking, and then it came you know, class number three, where she's looking for all this white stuff that we have to taste to make sure that Not we crack. didn't lose any of the crack. I know that's what it was today, but I just thought, okay, we just eat white stuff. So <laughs> she would taste stuff and spit it out. And I would pick up what she did to make sure I don't even know. And I'll spit hers out and then I'll find some white <laughs> shit of my own on this dirty, filthy bathroom. That was my first experience in this bathroom. And again, there was no communication. And then when the drugs were gone, because, right, no, fuck the pool game. We completely forgot that, mm -hmm. right? Somebody else is playing now. And I remember breaking out of that bathroom, being so, like, exhausted and hot and manic and all these different feelings that were going on. And I remember seeing some guys in the corner. They were shooting craps and playing cards, and they were kind of loud. Today, I know that I was paranoid. But, again, there was no communication. All I was doing was thinking. I'm like, why are they looking at me? What are they looking at me for? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We walked out of that bathroom and onto a milk crate. 
on the strip of the outside of the pool hall. And we sat there and I think I wasn't able to talk for about a good 30, 45 minutes. I was unable to like say anything. Neither was Peggy because she sat right there. <laughs> and when we were able to communicate again, the first words that came out of my mouth was, what was that? And Peggy said, that's crack. And she said, those guys over there playing in the corner and shooting dice, they're the ones that sell it. They take money, they take jewelry. And in my 16 year old mind, right? I didn't see anything wrong with that. I, you know, outside of the fact that you have to smoke it in the bathroom and weird stuff happens, you know, I didn't see anything wrong with the drug. Peggy didn't tell me that I was gonna be a hooker, right? She didn't tell me that I'm gonna steal everything that wasn't nailed down in my family's home. You know, she didn't tell me that I was gonna go to jail. You know, so many times that you'll stop counting after 50, like what's the mm -hmm. point? She didn't tell me that I was gonna go to prison three times. She didn't tell me I was gonna go to treatment. 13 times, right? She had to count. She didn't tell me I was going to go to treatment 13 times. She didn't tell me I was going to get raped. She didn't tell me any of these things. And I got to be real honest, if Peggy would have told me those things, I really don't think it would have changed any part of our journey because I do believe that everything that I've been through, right, was absolutely necessary for me to have the level of gratitude that I have today. It was all part of my divine. I didn't see that in early recovery. I didn't see that you know, in treatment when people were telling me that, I do see that now, right? Because I probably wouldn't even be sitting here with you. I'd mm -hmm. be in a jail cell. I wouldn't be of service to anybody. And that was the long and the short. You know, I used for 10 years. And in those 10 years, a lot of divine interventions, I call them divine interventions. Now, when I was getting arrested, there weren't divine interventions. They were like, oh my God, I can't believe this, you know? Another being stuck because all I wanted to do was use. But I'm grateful for the interventions because I don't know what would have happened if I didn't have them, you know, especially the rapes. I remember one of the rapes I'm going to talk about is, you know, I was on Sunrise, you know, and I went up to this guy's, he was, a, it was a two-story apartment. Mm -hmm. And again, this is a God moment for me because when I went in there to complete the said transaction, I remember him closing that door with a deadbolt key. Mm -hmm. and taking the key out. Now, normally I wouldn't pay attention to those things, but I understood that. that. I understood, yeah. And um, we did yeah, the Yeah, because there's no reason to take the key out. Right. Mm -hmm. We did, I don't, listen, there was a God moment because I was so busy tweaking and peeping, there was no reason for me to even zoom in on that particular moment. But uh, after the deed was done, he said, you know what I do to you guys? And I'm trying to put on my, you know, find my shoe, not put on anything. Find my stuff. I couldn't find my stuff. He had removed all my stuff. And he says, you know what we call you guys is what he started with. I says, what are you talking about? Where's my clothes? He says, we call you heads. I says, okay, all right, where are my clothes? He says, no, we call you chicken heads. And as I looked up, he was coming with like a screwdriver. I can't, wow. screwdriver. And he was charging at me. And as I was running, I had a door and a window. Mm -hmm. And... If I ran to the door, again, another moment, I probably wouldn't be here. And I flew out of this two-story window. It was closed. You know, thank God it the frames were thin enough for me to even be able to do that. Wow. You busted through the window? Busted through the window, flew out of there like Spider-Man. Butt naked? Butt naked and dropped two stories down, right? Jesus. This was a Friday night. So there were clubs. It was in the hood. Busy stuff was happening. And I flew out of that building, dropped to the floor, and ran around the corner, right? And I remember going to that payphone, another wonderful payphone event. And I dialed 911, and I was standing there with no clothes on. And there was like a club and a store, and people were out watching this naked girl mm -hmm. dial 911. The cops came. They gave me this little yellow styrofoam blanket to cover myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they asked me, do you want to go to the hospital? You know, is there someone we can call? And I said, no, my uncle lives right down the street. Now, this was not even my uncle. It was just another dope house. Yeah. That's how my disease had me. And it's important for me to remember those things, right? Because in recovery, I tend to, you know, I'm an addict. It's in my DNA to want to use, especially when life shows up. So some of my first thoughts is, wow, a tequila, a crack, a joint. These things would make me feel really okay. I have those moments. The relief. Mm-hmm. The escape. And I get to think about those dramatic moments. I got raped nine times, so wow. I have a lot of those dramatic moments. You know what I mean? 
and I tend to not want to forget them because they are the things that I hold on to when I have an obsession to use or something's going on where the drug and the alcohol seem like a good outlet. I have to remind myself that it's not. This is where it takes me. Mm -hmm. um, I was clean. So Ronnie, I want to go back to Ronnie, the guy that murdered my sister. So he killed my sister in 1984. He got out and then he murdered Lisa Dykes. And for that murder, right? Because now this girl that he murdered, she was, uh, she was pregnant. And it's like when he went to prison, he had learned ways to be more disgusting and insidious, mm -hmm. right? Much like our disease. But this girl was pregnant. He stabbed my sister eight times. This young lady, he stabbed 18 times. Wow. And she had 13 bite marks where flesh was removed from her body. Crazy. And remember, she was like seven and a half months pregnant. So Lisa Dykes stayed alive just long enough for her to give birth to the baby, Julius. His wow. name is Julius. And to identify him, clearly, right? So when they picked him up, you know, they charged him with first-degree murder and attempted first-degree murder. And he ended up getting death row, like finally, right? He was mm -hmm. on death row. And I remember he was on death row for probably like seven or eight years. And he was granted a new trial wow. in 2004. And he got his lawyer. The lawyer had said, you know, he was a traumatic kid. He, he was homeless. He was bullied. His family lived in a car. And, you know, the gift of what I have in recovery is that I got plenty of friends mm -hmm. that have lived in cars and was homeless. And they was, don't kill nobody. I mean, thousands <laughs> yeah. of them. So I was able to go to court, go on the news and say, listen, I have so many friends that have done these things and they didn't resort to killing people and raping eight-year-old girls. Mm -hmm. You know, so the jury, even though he tried to use that as a vice to get out, the jury came back again 10 to 2, still in favor of his death row sentence. Meanwhile... The baby that survived, he lived on tubes all of his life. He couldn't do anything, just the most beautiful boy you ever did see, but mm -hmm. could do nothing. He died just recently. He died, I think like 20, late 2018 or early 2019. He finally succumbed to all of his injuries and he died. So now they just charged him with that murder. And he's waiting to go to court for this one. And he's been in there for a minute. And I remember thinking, you know, how does he get out to get back into general pop? And now he's stuck in the jail. And I'm thinking, I know what jail is like. You play cards, you swap food, and you're living a life. And I was pissed. Of course. I was so fucking pissed that uh, how does he get a chance to have these moments? Not even thinking, you know, because quite frankly, the average stay for death row in South Florida is like 10 years. He's going on a good 20 years. Like my mother's waiting for some type of closure, right? Like, we're all just waiting, even though we weren't going to get it via my sister's murder. You know, we're waiting. And I'm sure the Dykes family is waiting. Like, how does, yeah, how does get... that happen? Yeah. Again, all these things, you know, especially with grief and loss. I got a daughter. She's struggling with active addiction. You know, I sit here and I, and I think about my journey with God. That's a serious journey for me, right? And, you know, getting clean and starting to work steps and... Honestly, when I first got clean in 1995. That's the first time? It's the first time I got clean. How old were you? 26. Okay. And I used from 16 to 26. So I came in the room at 26 years old, which is a beautiful age to get clean. Any, any age is a beautiful <laughs> age to get clean. But for me particularly, it's like I had lived a lot of stuff. And I was at an age that I still had some of my life that I could do and make changes. So that's what I mean by, you know, all of my life wasn't just, you know, there was options and still choices, schooling and stuff. It's like, I didn't want to hear the word God when I got here. And I grew up Catholic. I did not want to hear God because I grew up with a God. And when I got here, my interpretation of the God that I knew is that he is the alpha. He's the omega. So that means he's in control of everything that's going on. And if he is, why would he hook me up with all of this life that I've been through? He should have. So I was pissed. I did, we had no connection. And it was as a result of working the steps and realizing all these near-death experiences that I've had, had, I'm not a superhero, had it not been for him, you know, that's the joy in the journey of working the steps of Narcotics Anonymous, right? It's one thing to sit here and speak with you or speak with anybody, even at work. I do a lot of talking at work, but when I sit still with the God of my understanding, I get so grateful for just even being here. And so we fell in love. Me and God fell in love, right? Yeah. And, um, and I was clean. I was clean for 16 years, and then I relapsed. 
you know, it's uh, people will ask me, you know, why would you relapse after 16 years? And I got to tell you, I hated my job. My brother had a heart attack. You know, my daughter was in active addiction. My father had died. Like all these different things were going on. But the truth be told, in those 16 years that I was clean, I had enough information, an amazing God of my understanding, to know that I could have gotten through anything that was coming my way because I had gotten through far worse in those 16 years. So I got to tell you that I used because I made a decision to use. I de- Were you still going to meetings? I was going to meetings. I was vice chair of h and I remember. Yeah. I was very involved, right? It, you know. Well, they're normally saying, oh, I used. And yeah. then the story is, well, I stopped going to meetings. Nope. I stopped having a sponsor. No, nope. I was sponsoring. Were you still praying? Yeah, I was praying. And I was listening to CDs. You know, we have cassettes of and course. CDs. And I'm trying so hard to, like, drown out the obsession I guess, you know, for it me, I could crazy. I could say that, you know, when you have a reservation, you don't talk about it. Yeah. It don't matter if you got all the steps in the world yeah. and 20 sponsees. If you feel like using, you don't tell Nothing. nobody about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's a thing. And I'm It don't matter you, what you do. And I got, listen, my drug of choice is crack, right? And I played this tape in my head that I've talked about so much. A drug is a drug, right? And I said, listen, I'm going to go and buy a bottle of brandy. I never drank. So the brandy name only came from, I have a sister that loves brandy and she talks about her brandy. So when I went into the liquor store, I didn't even know what to ask for. I just remember my sister said, brandy, I'm going to drink what she drank. And I got an airplane, not even a big bottle, airplane mm-hmm. bottle of brandy, the smallest one. And I went home, I drank the brandy and two things entered my head, right? Because we could do a lot of lying to a lot of people. It's really hard to lie to yourself when you're stuck with yourself, right? So my head said, you stupid bitch. It's the first thing it said. You just blew your clean time. See, I could probably go back out and and lie about that, but I'm home with me. Mm -hmm. So the truth is that you just gave up your clean time right now. You've relapsed. That went on. And then the second thought, if you're going to blow your relapse, you're not going to blow it on alcohol, bitch. You did not. And my thought when I picked up that bottle was I was going to go home. I was going to drink that bottle. I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to go to work like nothing ever happened. And we know that never works out, right? So I was out for almost seven months, six and a half months. And in those six and a half months, I'd like to think like the first two months of my relapse, I was all in the middle of Narcotics Anonymous and service and uh-huh. you know, all that. But pushing that third month. Were you, did you go and get crack Im- immediately? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That night. Wow. That night. It's right after that thought. They're still selling it on Sunrise. Yeah, yeah. They're still selling it on Sunrise. <laughs> and listen, here's the thing. I didn't crazy. know. I was freaking out. I didn't know where to go. I mean, I knew where to go, but I didn't know what door exactly to knock. Exactly where. Yeah. So my mission was to go in the hood, right, and find someone that's riding a bike or tweaking, you know, our stereotypes. And then say, listen, because I had a truck. Put your truck on the back. I need to go cop. And then I wanted to take a hostage to guide me through. I needed class You again, need a guide, right? yeah. I, yeah, I needed class. I needed an internship as to, you know, how to begin this moment. And I was off to the races again. And you know what's insane is that, you know, I lived by myself. There was a lot of times that I could go and cop and just come home. But I had to be thrown back. I was at the dope houses. I was like, I had to be in the middle mm-hmm. of everything. The lifestyle. Yeah. And that's what made it crazy, you know. Um, and then when a reality set in, you know, sometimes I hear these voices, you know, sometimes it's not, I'm not schizophrenic or anything, but like, you're going to die if you don't stop. You're going to die. Something's going to happen. And I did hear, you're going to die. And I did feel like I wanted to die. When reality set in for me and, you know, you couldn't do this anymore. Either I maxed out on my money or the gig was up. Whatever it was, I came to this place and I said, you know, I'd much rather just die than to go back into the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous. When did people start to realize that you were using? Two months in, my family started to do a bunch of interventions, you know. They would show up, I'd cook and tell them to leave. You know, I'd try to do the best I could, like, go. We Did you get try to make it box. seem like you were just drinking or they knew? No, no, They no. knew you were still Yeah, they crack. knew. They knew. They knew. You know, the drink, it was only the, the brandy. That <laughs> I want that at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I went to see a couple of psychiatrists. I was trying to, uh, you know, deal with the anxiety, deal with depression without telling people, look, I'm getting high. Mm-hmm. You know, every moment I'd have these sparks of 
wanted to show up and try to get into a solution and it was unsuccessful. The only real solution is surrender, right? And I was trying to do everything but surrender. And when it came time for me to surrender, it just seemed easier to just die than to start this all over again. The shame, the guilt, the pride, the ego, the control, all of those were extremely overwhelming for me and it just made more sense. And remember, I had a beautiful relationship with God Right. So even though I grew up Catholic and I know that it's not OK to do that, I felt that my relationship was so personal that he was going to give me a pass and I'm going to be OK. So I swallowed this 52 clonopin and, you know, I worked for 15 years at Broward Health on acute psych. I worked in a psych ward. Right. I figured I could, you know, hide my crazies <laughs> working with the crazies. And I loved it. I loved working in psych. I had a sponsee that was staying with me at the time that I participated in her relapse as well. She was devastated. I forgot that I was going to have her move into one of my rooms in the middle of all of this. And then here she is calling me while I'm tweaking. I'm moving in today. I'm so excited. I'm like, oh, shit. Wow. Yeah. And she was in the next room and I could hear her crying. She put it all together. Once she walked in my house, she could put it all together. And she was crying. And after she cried, I thought I feel bad. I'll take her to a sneaker store, buy some sneakers. <laughs> I'm sweating. I don't know what to do in the public, but I'm trying to do what I can to make her feel good. And at the end of the day, when we got back, she just wanted to use. That is one of my biggest, uh, I don't want to say regrets, but one of the things that hurt me the most in this journey is that I participated in another addict, an addict that you know what, I was her sponsor. Yeah, they're looking at you for help. I was her sponsor, yeah. So that was like, fucked up. So we were using together, right? And that all went left. She, Her mom was sending her money, so you know, for rent, but we were a whole other mission. It was just absolutely horrible. So she was in the house when a reality set in for me, when I said, I'm going to kill myself. And I swallowed this 52 clonopin. And when she came into my room, I was out. She called 911 and they Baker acted me. The nearest Baker Act facility. They must have pumped your stomach, right? They, listen, they pumped my stomach with charcoal. Because mm -hmm. 52 clonopins are a lot. And uh, they Baker acted me to my own psych floor. Now that's crazy, right? Because I spent 15 years in that building saying, okay, time for your vitals, time for your cues, let's go smoke, wow. let's, let's get time for lunch. The, it, my floor, they didn't even think, because there's three, they, back then there were three psych floors at Broward Health that they could have sent me to, but I ended up on my own floor. And I was sleeping for like maybe two days, right? And I, when I woke up, I had this charcoal that I didn't know at the time. My whole gown, I had on a gown with like one sock, one smiley face sock. And when I heard, the first thing I heard was, time to take your vitals. And I'm like, oh shit, I got to get up, right? And I get up and I go grab the vital side machine and walking down the hall to go into people's rooms to take their vitals. Because this is what I was doing for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And my coworkers looked at me with the charcoal gown. And I said, Robin, listen, bitch. Is your vitals were taken. Go back to your room. And I realized what had happened. I didn't even know. That was a very humbling experience for me. Um, then the surrender kicked in. As soon as I got discharged from there, I ended up at a meeting. You know, like I said, quite a few people knew, but the shock effect of going into a meeting and picking up a white key tag is a whole different story. It had nothing to do with them and everything to do with me. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple of things that I had to change. I could not have the same sponsor for one. You know, I loved my sponsor. It wasn't anything that she did. It just, all the shame and all the guilt was so overwhelming. You feel like you let her down. You feel, you know, mm -hmm. I tried to run and go to different areas, go to Del Rey, go to Miami to try to do meetings because I was trying to tap back in. But when I went to the local meetings that I was familiar with, that I had been going to, I'd sit in the parking lot and I'd just be a mess. It was just a little bit more freeing for me to go. A different area. People different don't know area you. in the beginning. And, you know. I left the job. I retired from the district. Thank God they allowed me to retire. And I started working back in treatment again because I remember in early recovery, I worked in treatment. I started to do a lot of the same things that helped me in the beginning, you know, and I had to get a new sponsor. I went through a series of different sponsors. One of them, and all of them I've known for a while. Of course. It was just a matter of figuring out which one was going to work for me. And I had one sponsor for the whole 16 years. But when I came back, trying to find this sponsor became an episode and an event. And the first one that I asked, again, I love her very much. And I asked her to sponsor me. And she said, yeah. And she told me to open up the basic text, which is our literature, you know. She said, open up the basic text to the first blank page. And I did. And she said, that's what you know. Now, I understand what she was telling me was that she wanted me to be a blank state, be open, be teachable. 
but I have a disease that's so sneaky that it says, you know what she's telling you, right? She's telling you that you could date newcomers, you can go to the strip club, you can go to the casino, you could drink old duels, all these different things. Mm -hmm. And that petrified me because I really wanted to hold on. So I had to let, you know, that that sponsorship dynamic go. And then I got another sponsor and I loved her. I loved them all, right? Mm -hmm. Sponsorship is a service that we do wholeheartedly, not with any other outcome, but to help ourselves stay clean. That's really what it is. And uh, the other one, she was getting ready to, I love her. She's, as she was sponsoring me, this is like my second year back. She was sponsoring me and uh, she ended up with liver failure and she needed a liver transplant. She's not even here with us anymore. So it got really, really bad. And then I said, you know, how can I bring this woman all my problems when she's got all these yeah. problems. And she would constantly tell me, no, bring me your problems, bring me everything because it helps me, you know, affirming that that's what sponsorship is about, right? And and I said, yeah, and, and I stayed and I loved her and she had this wonderful relationship with God. She used to have this saying that that good old God is absolutely nuts about us. You know, some of these things, bits and pieces. I know who it is. Yeah, yeah I know. I mean, mm -hmm. can I call her name? If you want. Her name you. is Cheryl. Mm -hmm. Cheryl. And I loved her. I loved her. I loved Bella. And honestly, my first sponsor, her name was Lanise. All of these women, if I'm struggling today, I can call any one of them. That's the gift of what we're doing here in recovery. Like, you know, I have sponsees that that don't get all their information from me. They And I want them to get a slew of information. Mm -hmm. There's so many different roads to so many different issues that we have going on. That's the greatest thing about this program, you know? We're in 131 countries. Narcotics Anonymous mm -hmm. is in 131 countries. They have a world convention in Kenya, for God's sake. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, I travel. I lived in a in a 10-block radius for my act of addiction mm -hmm. when I lived in three continents before then. I got so stuck. Today, I'm not stuck. I know that uh, this is the greatest show on earth. We are worldwide. And, you know, with COVID now, with all that's going on with us, I just got my vaccine, so I feel a bit more safe right mm -hmm. now. I got both my doses. I feel like a superhero. Nice. You know, when this started and we had to stay in the homes and we had to do, you know, meetings via Zoom, mm -hmm. like I didn't want it. We'd never like change. I didn't want to do all of that. I'm a people person. I want to, you know what I'm saying? And I realized with the Zoom, right, a year later, like I could go to meetings anywhere in the world from my room. And that reaffirms that even though I was stuck in my room for this moment, we're still doing everything that we need to for our recovery to avoid any relapse. And now I don't even want to go to outside meetings anymore. Now I'm all stuck in. You like doing and I love it. I could be in my pajamas and in the Philippines all at the same time. That is so cool. Um, How long you got back now? I will celebrate nine years, June 6th. 6 6 12 is my clean date. And, um, you know, again, when I talked about everything happening for a reason, I'm absolutely grateful even now for my relapse. You know, the literature talks about sometimes we need the relapse to have a greater respect for our recovery. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happened with me. I don't make any haste decisions. I check what my motives are behind it. Nothing is ever that important, right, for me to jump into anything. There was this speaker, and I've had a lot of these moments, right? There was this speaker and he said, sometimes we'll be faced with having to make a choice. Choice one, two, and three, and all of them suck. But you gotta make a choice, right? All of them suck, you don't know which one to make. And we could choose just not to make any of them, to just sit back, talk to the God of your understanding, and let stuff unfold like it's supposed to. That was a big thing for me with the 16 years that I had, right? Also a big thing was relationships. You know, I, I spent 16 years with someone by my side, right? Always had, they made everything, they validated everything. When I came back, I knew that relationships was an issue for me. So I spent my first three years in no relationships. I watch a lot of porn because, you know, <laughs> needs have to be met. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's but um, a magical thing happened. Mm -hmm. I was able to pay attention to me invest in what it is that I want in life and not even just in the relationships, but what it is that I want in this new chapter that I've been given that, you know, I fought hard for, but truly I've been given from the God of my understanding because I didn't have to be here. You know, the casualties for us is jails, institutions, and death. We have addicts. I'm sure you do too. Mm -hmm. We have friends that we thought were good and then they die by all rights. If I was given what I deserved, I should have been dead. Mm -hmm. So I'm grateful for all of that. I pay closer attention with this new founded recovery. I love service. 
is something I miss a little bit because it's been curtailed because of COVID. But we do, we make things happen. Mm -hmm. We're very creative people. Some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life is addicts and alcoholics. How did you get, because uh, you know, you skimmed by that you worked in a treatment in the beginning, but like what motivated you or how hard was it going back to school? Because it seemed like you didn't go to school your whole life. No, and I went to school before the relapse. Yeah, that's what I mean. Well, I mean, I graduated from high school. I don't remember any of that. I was mm -hmm. totally wasted, you know? Um, and I went to school with a group of other addicts. Again, it was a collective decision. We all decided to do it as a team. So it was like nine really? of us. Yeah. Nine Bella, people in recovery Bella, all went to school Yeah, together. we went to school together. College. And, yep, for my CAC, to be a substance abuse therapist. Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of role playing. It was an intimate school. So there was a lot of um, discussion, role playing, you know, fellowshipping before and after. So it made it a whole lot easier. I was very nervous when it was time to take the test because that's the only time. There ain't no fellowshipping, right? Mm -hmm. You got to sit in the corner by yourself. So the fear was overwhelming there. But, um, and I did, I, I tried to manipulate that too, right? I had found out that for the test, it was 150 questions and there's only three of the tests out there. So I found, I'm creative. I found all three tests and I studied all three tests so that I'll have all the information. And when I went to take my test, I swear to God, the 150 questions, not one of them were one of was one that I studied. Wow. I said, you have got to be kidding me and you have to be quiet. And I almost wanted to tell the instructor, you know, I think you gave me the wrong test, <laughs> right? But I couldn't and I was nervous and I was already making plans to uh, sign up for the next test. I knew that I'm gonna fail. But again, God has a plan and I, and I passed the test. So that's the one thing we couldn't do together. Studying, you know, what we do, it made it easier. It made it interesting. It was attractive because it's me. It's us. So talking about relapse, you know, when I see people that are getting clean, I see a lot of uh, like overconfidence, you know, like, yeah. like I see like the person that thinks they're not going to relapse, the first person mm -hmm. to relapse, you know, a lot of times I see people that are new in recovery and they have this attitude of like, oh, I'm done. I'm just not going to use ever yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to grasp the concept of recovery that it's constantly a level of fitness. Yeah. You know, it's not something you kind of get over. And, nope. even, and there's a lot of diseases of like life. that. Mm -hmm. You know, if you get over cancer, they don't ever say you're cured, you're in right. remission. Right. You know, so for us being clean, we're mm -hmm. in remission. Always. It can always pop back up whenever I have to learn it is. The hard way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I remember when my first sponsee died, my uh, couldn't believe that this kid died. And uh, my sponsor uh, made it really clear to me that uh, he doesn't get surprised when people die. He's surprised when people are clean. Right. This is the, the norm yeah. for us is that we die. Is that the we miracle, OD right? in a bathroom and a Dunkin' Donuts or we go to jail. Like, that's what's supposed to happen. And he would always say, like, I'm surprised that your ass still calls me, you know? <laughs> like, you know, so, yeah. and that's the mentality to have, you know? And if you're working in, in treatment, you got to have that humility to know that I could be a patient. And the way for me to do that is to keep saying it. I tell you mm -hmm. know, I'm a recovery coach, so I'm all hands with the clients. I mm -hmm. could live without my coworkers, <laughs> right? Because I love addicts, right? They're my people, you know? And I do. You mentioned, you know, they feel like there's an end game here and there's something to graduate to. And I'm constantly reminding them of my relapse. Because mm -hmm. that's very important. I want them to know that this disease is insidious. You know, that means lying in wait, busy in one spot. Mm -hmm. And it waited for me for 16 years, very patiently. And it's waited for friends of mine. I've had friends that relapsed for 26 years clean. Yeah. So like, this is something that we have to look at it as a way of life. If we start looking at this is something I need to hurry up and finish, even the steps, when we do step one through 12, it's a 12 step program, we turn around and we either do the steps again, or we, we do, do the traditions, yeah. or we do the concepts, you know, like this is, always peeling back layers mm -hmm. of our beautiful selves that we've covered with so many bricks and, and layers mm -hmm. because we thought that we need to keep all of that, especially when you got trauma, right? Yeah. I never wanted to talk about my rapes. I remember- Did your sponsor suggest you go to therapy? Nope. You did it all with your sponsor? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's cool. And, and I'm gonna tell you, again, it's Narcotics Anonymous because when I got clean, I never wanted to talk about those things. Jail, my sister. And I remember going to a convention and the speaker, remember I told you I'm Catholic, mm -hmm. the speaker's name was Father Sam from Baltimore. I heard uh -huh. him. Yeah. And that convention, wow. he was speaking and he had on his collar. So he made it very apparent. Listen, his story- It's insane. Blew me. And I'm sitting there probably with like 
you know, 45 days clean. My sponsor took me to the convention. You're going to mm -hmm. love this. And I was freaking out. I don't want to be there. I'm not in touch with any of anything that's going on with me yet at that moment. And I'm listening to this priest that I could have been to mass at so many times with, right? And I'm listening to him share the graphics of his journey. And I was like, this is crazy. There's no way that I could possibly, you know, because a lot of his stuff I've seen or been exposed to, right? And I'm like, how could he do this? And I was in awe with everything, but I understood one thing he said, right? That the only way for me to stay clean was to stay naked in front of you. Mm -hmm. And I understood that all these things that I wanted to take to the grave, like they're my jewels. Mm -hmm. That's what's gonna make or break everything that's going on in my journey and to pave the way for other women who may feel like I can't talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I talk about it repetitively, you know, and I did before, but what I do add is that just because we're doing everything that we need to do doesn't mean we're done. Mm -hmm. We got more stuff. There's always, there's layers to us. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've peeled back nowhere near enough. <laughs> um, Working in treatment is rewarding for that. You know, absolutely. early recovery, my first time, I used to think recovery, you know, I'm working in treatment, I'm covering everything there. So when I leave, I'm good. I've talked to addicts, we talked about steps, now it's time to do me. Mm -mm. But I learned the hard way, right? That I have to do my meetings. I, I still do four meetings a week right now. And I talk about recovery and steps and NA history mm -hmm. all day, you know, but that's not mine. Yeah. And, you know, I worked in treatment uh, when I had like five years clean and mm -hmm. I started to, yeah, working in treatment is great, but, you know, my sponsor used to really tell me like, don't think you're in there. Yeah doing recovery stuff, mm -hmm. you know? And and he really drove the home. He's like, dude, that is a job. job yeah. That's a job that is not personal recovery. You know, no. you need to go to your own meetings. You need to take care of yourself, which it's happens to important. a lot of people yeah, yeah, that yeah, are yeah. recovery coaches uh -huh. or advocates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They get so immersed with talking about treatment and that recovery. They think, it, yeah. they think that that counts uh -huh. and no. it's totally different. Mm -mm. I remember when I left working in treatment the first time and it felt really good to work all day and not tell anyone I was in recovery. It just felt really good to yeah. have my anonymity because like I just got sick of it because mm -hmm. I would go to meetings and I would see the clients and I'd go over here and I'd see the client and then yeah. like I don't ha feel like I have any anonymity anymore and it felt really good to just uh, work mm -hmm. and then come home and now the meetings are my relief. Whereas I started to see them as the same whereas mm -hmm. like recovery was kind of like my work. Even now, like I like going to meetings where I don't see anybody. You know, yeah, I like going yeah. to the gym where I don't see anybody. I'm the complete opposite. Oh, you like seeing anybody? Not so I like much, both. Not, I like so having both. The anonymity I'm, part of mm -hmm. not letting anybody know. Mm -hmm. I try to, I let everybody know. And yeah. it's because of how I did my act of addiction. You know, mm -hmm. I was a hooker. Yeah. You know, I was a hooker. Did I tell you I was a hooker? I heard. Yeah, I was a hooker <laughs> for 10 years. So, and this is my area. It's where yeah. I got clean. You know, some comedians, right? They like to put their hard stuff in front so yeah. nobody can hurt them with this. And that, that that was a big defense mechanism, especially being a woman. I show up in a store, oh my God, I know you. I'm like, oh my God, did we sleep together? I don't do that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'd rather, and it's helped me, especially with my daughter and active addiction, I have to keep all of my realities smack dab in front of me. I mm -hmm. can't afford to be hoodwinked again because I was hoodwinked with 16 years yeah. clean. So it became something that, like I have to prepare, the literature tells us that we end up in jails, institutions, and death. So almost at least every other day, because my daughter's completely strung out as we speak, wow. I have to remind myself that any day I can get a phone call telling me that my daughter was found dead. So I have to keep all, because if I'm not preparing for that, I'd rather prepare for it and it absolutely not happen. And I feel like when death really rocks someone's world, it's because they've been living this whole time thinking that it would never happen to them. Right. Yeah. You know? So like, for me is everything. And and not just that, the way I live my life, you know, like I say I love you before I hang up on the phone with people because I, I know that there's a way that, you know, I might Anything. never see them yeah. again, you know. I know that uh the time that I have with them is special. I'm not entitled to it. Right. Like I know that if I have a close friend of mine, we've been friends for five years, I know those five years is a total gift mm -hmm. and that the same thing that created this person can take it away. Right. And that um if they were to die it's hard, but I would have to practice saying, at least I got five years with them, yeah. not feeling angry and bitter that I didn't get 10, 
you know, because, and the world we live in, you know, I mean, yeah, tomorrow, crazy. in general, even with the earthlings, right? The people don't have these habits. <laughs> tomorrow isn't promised to anyone, but mm -hmm. we are definitely at a higher risk. Yeah, so we, we have to. I don't know anyone it. that goes to more funerals than us. Oh, right. You know this is what and, I'm saying. And this is a whole nother part of recovery that no one prepares you for mm -hmm. because you think you have trauma when you're using. Right. We start to develop new trauma here. Exactly. just being friends with each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, because the first time I built a close relationship with somebody and I told you, like, my first sponsee died, uh -huh. it really fucked me up. And it was because I wasn't expecting right. yeah. it. I didn't think it would happen. You know, maybe he wouldn't stay clean and he would use. But, like, him dying was, like, very uh, something I hadn't even ready. Yeah. ready for. And that really rocked me. And now here you are five years later. How's that? Yeah. I mean, um... We get practice and it's, yeah, it's like know, we're at war. Yeah, it's crazy it's because, it, you know, I, I'm involved in a cancer foundation with kids. And my friend who is in charge of the foundation, he deals with this all the time. And we both have a friend who's in recovery, right? So this is kind of how we met. And he'll call me and be like, can you believe so-and-so relapsed? And I'm like, yeah. And he's just like, this must drive you crazy. And I'm just like, well, because <laughs> he'll call me like, yo, he's doing so good. And I'll be like, yeah, he's doing great. And he's like... Oh, he's not doing good anymore. And I'm like, I don't invest. If they're doing good, great. If they relapse, okay. Like, I can understand. Like, you know, someone's, you really got to be clean for like five years for me to really be like, shocked, okay, yeah. you're pretty solid. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. five yeah, months, yeah. you know, you're still a baby. You know, it's the same way, vice versa, with him with the kids with cancer. Because oh when one of the kids with cancer dies, even though he'll tell me it's hard, you know, it, it's going to happen, right. da, 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 I'm not ready for it. Right. And I'll tell him, like, how do you deal with that? Like, yeah. it's insane. It's like but yeah. it's the same thing for him. He was just like, well, I mean, I've been doing this a long time, you know? Yeah. So, like, we both share that parallel it where he's doing, yeah, yeah, because it's nice. cancer and addiction is so similar because they call it relapsing mm -hmm, too, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? So, it's like, when I started to talk to, and then the families all have different treatment plans, and <laughs> this one wants to take this one to chemo. This Aww. one says chemo is going to kill them. This one's, you know, it's crazy. I didn't even think about it like it that. It is so crazy because I deal with the families a lot and talk to them. Yeah. And everyone in the family has a different opinion. They're trying so hard. And uh, it's kind of calloused me to seeing addicts die because it's like, what happened at least you had a life to fuck up mm -hmm. you know what i mean mm -hmm. watching uh like the kids die is so heartbreaking you know yeah, i don't think i could do that yeah i thought it would be like when i started i thought it'd be cute and fun and it, it has not been you know when people ask me about it it's it's like uh it's crazy i could stomach that mm -hmm. well i want to thank you for having being on the show i love you very much I love it's always you good to see you you always got good vibes and good energy appreciate you I'm glad I could be of service. Thank you. Namaste. Thank you. Namaste. Have a good one. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.